Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever messed up? Have you ever messed up your life? Has God ever said to you, go this way, but you've gone that way instead? Now, sometimes we do that honestly mistaken, and we realize later. But sometimes we do it on purpose. God says, go this way. We go that way because we suppress the knowledge of the revelation of God, and we justify it to ourselves. We think we know better than God. Now, Scriptures record God working in human history. God never messes up. God never makes mistakes. His purposes will be accomplished. His decrees stand firm. And it is marvelous to see in the history of the world and in the record of Scripture, the history of redemption. It is marvelous to see how there is such an unshakable truth that God's will is done. It is done despite all the raging of the nations, despite all the kings of the earth conspiring together against the Lord and His anointed. And God's sovereign will is done. It is accomplished despite all the failures and the mistakes and the missteps and the mess-ups and the outright sins of God's children. You know, if you read the Bible, the Bible is a very honest book. And you read the Bible, you see the whole history of redemption is one string of failures. The holy line from from Eve right to the Christ is imperfect, fallible human beings. You know, you might expect that if this is the holy line from which the Messiah will be born, that there would be evolution. There would be progress, holier and holier and more and more righteous and glorious and heroic and successful and good until finally Christ comes as the very apex of it all. But that's not how it works. There's no idea of progress. There's no idea of evolution. The coming of the Holy Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the seed of the woman, is a shocking and surprising miracle that he could be born from ancestors such as these. And all these mess-ups throughout history come together to make awfully clear how much we sinners need the Lord Jesus Christ and how salvation can certainly not depend upon our works and our worth, but it must be only from the Lord, from the Lord alone. And we see that in our text chapter this morning, chapter 27 of the book of Genesis. Again, Scripture is very, very open and honest about the failures of God's children. Even the greatest patriarchs of all, the greatest leaders of God's people, the Holy Spirit doesn't cover it up. So many sins, so many mistakes, so much imperfection. We're just in the first pages of Scripture. 
And we've just seen so much of it already here in chapters 27. And yet, nothing can prevent God's word from coming true. Nothing can prevent God's promises from being fulfilled. And that's a glorious comfort for us, brothers and sisters, as we look at this chapter today. You look at verse 1 there, when Isaac was old. You remember that he was already quite old when Jacob and Esau were born. At the time of our chapter, he's probably older than 100, probably around 130. He's still got 40 or 50 years left on this earth, but he doesn't know that. He's blind. He can't see. And he figures that he, he might be called out of this life soon, so he calls Esau. And look, as you read through this chapter, did you notice how often the Holy Spirit emphasizes that Esau is the firstborn son, Esau is the older son, and that Jacob is the younger son? And so Esau is the one, he's the crown prince, remember, Abraham, Isaac, they are rulers of a small community, not that small, in the thousands. They have great wealth. They have a certain amount of power. Abraham was able to go head-to-head with a bunch of kings and their expeditionary forces. Esau is the crown prince of, this, of the people of God. To him normally would belong the birthright and the blessings to go with it. And so when Isaac calls his firstborn to bless him, this is not a private act This is not a personal act, but Isaac is acting in his office as the leader of God's people, as the priest, as the prophet, and as the king. As the head of God's people, he is providing for succession. He is crowning his successor. Now, the birthright is the double portion of the inheritance, and the leadership of God's people, taking on the role of of the, the priest and the prophet and the king. And the blessing that Isaac's about to give is the rich blessing of God for that task. And the most glorious privilege of the birthright and the blessing is that you get to be in that holy line spoken of in Genesis 3 verse 15, the holy line of the seed of the woman, that from you will come eventually the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so what Isaac's doing here is not just a personal thing. It's not just a family thing. It is a cosmic thing. It is a kingdom of God thing. It is an act of faith. Isaac is sure that God's promises will come true. And he embraces his duty as a prophet, as a priest, and as a king of God's people to pass on the covenant blessing to the next person in the holy line of the Messiah. And Scripture speaks well of this aspect of what Isaac's doing here. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 20. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. There was a lot of faith if you see the blessing that he gives. Because it speaks of incredibly 
powerful realities which were still very, very distant and not that likely, humanly speaking, in Isaac's time. And you look there in verses 27 and 28 and 29. You see these glorious promises about nations and peoples bowing down and serving. And you realize that with the eyes of faith, Isaac looks far into the future. Now, for Isaac, the coming of the Lord Jesus is about as far into the future as for us it is in the past. It's almost 2,000 years in the future for him, two millennia. But he faintly sees the glory and the victory of the kingdom of Christ. Now, he sees it in Old Testament terms. In the Old Testament, God used the promised land as a picture of heaven. Egypt is a picture of sin. So he sees it in Old Testament terms. But he does see it. That truth of which the psalmist speaks in Psalm 23, that you set before me a table in the presence of my enemies, that your goodness and your steadfast love, your covenant chesed love, follow me, that my cup overflows. So Isaac is giving a blessing here in faith of a glorious future. When when he says, let people serve you and nations bow down to you, he's seeing distantly in the future that great glory of the Son of God, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, who will rule the nations with a rod of iron, the one who will say before his ascension into heaven, all authority on heaven and earth have been given to me. Now, Isaac understands what he's doing. If you look at verse 33, when everything falls apart and and Isaac realizes that he blessed someone else rather than Esau, you see there in verse 33 what he says to Esau, I have blessed him, and yes, he shall be blessed. And so Isaac realizes this is not a personal act. This is not something that, oh, I gave one of my children something. Here, give it back. I'm going to give it to the other. This is not something that can be changed. But he is undertaking a solemn and sacramental act of faith. So there's a lot of faith here, but yet there's so much sin there as well because Isaac is prepared to give this to the wrong person. Now we know who he's supposed to, to whom he's supposed to give it. We know the prophecy of chapter 25. The older shall serve the younger. Isaac knows that that was the word of God to Rebekah. He also knows of Esau despising his birthright. And so God had said no. And Esau had said no. But what God had decreed against And what Esau had rejected, Isaac will insist upon. Esau will be his heir. And we know why. Because Esau was his favorite. Chapter 25, verse 28, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. Esau made him happy. He was proud of his son. He was a great hunter. And he knew how to dress and and prepare what he hunted to be so delicious, and Esau made Isaac's life very pleasant, and he wanted 
to honor his firstborn son with this blessing. And so Isaac is all ready. He's all prepared to let personal feelings trump God's revealed will. And before we get all shocked about that, we got to look in the mirror, starting with the guy in the pulpit, and realize that we do that almost every day, don't we? Every time we sin, we let our personal feelings trump God's revealed will. We know God's will. And, and we, we do want to love him, we do want to serve him, we do want to obey him, but in a way which fits with what we want and with what makes us feel comfortable, what we find convenient. And so Esau goes. You see there in verse 5, he goes to the field to hunt for game and to bring it. Now Esau is an unbeliever. He's unregenerate. He loves the world. He despised his birthright. Now he knows what that means. Despising his birthright meant that he said, I despise the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. It means nothing to me that the Messiah will come and that I get to participate in being that, in that holy line of the Savior of the world. It means nothing. I live for today. I live for my appetites. And so Esau is an unregenerate unbeliever who has despised the word of God and who has despised God's covenant love. And yet, even as an unbeliever, Esau in some measure comes out looking better than the believers in this chapter. He listens to his dad. He obeys his dad. He honors his father. Meanwhile, his father, Isaac, disobeys God. And his mother and brother conspire to deceive. We see that in verse 9, as Rebecca gets her little plan going there, as God's children throughout history have so often sinned and messed up, so Rebecca is messing up. She's conspiring with Jacob to steal the blessing by deceit. And what a strange mixture this is. Just like Isaac's acts, our faith mixed with all kinds of sin. So, Rebecca. Why is she doing this? Well, she's doing this because she is a believer. She believes God. She believes God's promise that Jacob is the chosen one. And she wants God's promises to come true. And that is good and admirable, laudable. But while that faith of our mother, Rebecca, is admirable, the problem is, is that she doesn't believe that God can do it that God can fulfill his promises. She figures that God needs her help. She doesn't wait on the Lord. We read Hebrews chapter 6, and, and we read about our father Abraham, that he waited on the Lord for the fulfillment of the promises. Rebecca can't do that, and neither can Jacob. Look there in verse 11. You see, Jacob doesn't say, Mom, 
the Lord made a promise. God is sovereign, Mom. God's going to make that happen. Let's wait on the Lord, Mom. It looks like that's almost humanly impossible that God's promise can come true because of the way that Dad is acting and Esau is acting. But, but God is God. And so let's have faith, Mom. Let's, let's trust in the Lord. He doesn't say that. He hasn't, doesn't have a problem with, with trying to make things happen. His worry is that he might get caught. Maybe the plan will backfire and it will turn out worse for me. I don't want to end up with a curse. So he's like, he's like us so many times, right? We, how often do we not turn away from sin? Not because we hate sin, not because we love God, because we figure, you know what, the cost of that sin will be too great. Isn't that shameful? Do you see that in your life? I see it in mine. That you look at a sin, you say, yeah, that, that, that the cost will be too great, therefore I will not pursue this temptation. That's kind of an ungodly attitude, which is in our father Jacob as well here. Brothers and sisters, what do we see in this chapter? We see Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob. They are believers, but their faith is imperfect. They, they mess up, and they mess up badly. Instead of focusing on the obedience of faith, they get carried away with their feelings and desires. And yet, despite this irresponsibility of God's children, in fact, even in the midst of and through this irresponsibility, God's purpose in election does stand and continue. Not because of works, certainly not, but because of him who calls. Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger. God ordained that the line of the Christ would go through Jacob. And no amount of the raging of the unbeliever and no amount of the messing up of the believer can change God's eternal decree. And that's why in all this mess, Isaac ends up blessing Jacob as much as he tried hard not to. And that is why Jacob gets blessed, even though his attempt at deceit should really have been a failure. I mean, really? Goat skins? How did he ever expect to get away with that? But he did. Now, the Lord promises to avert all evil or turn it to our good. And that includes our mistakes and our failures and our sins that he will turn to his glory. Now Esau, like every unbeliever, gets what he wants. He's the oldest son. He's the firstborn son, and the emphasis in this chapter draws attention to what he threw away, what he despised. And Esau is like every unbeliever in the church. He wants the temporal blessings and privileges of being in God's people, but he doesn't want Christ. 
He's more than willing to go along for the ride and enjoy the good things that come from living in the fellowship of God's people. But he doesn't want to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus. Uh, He does cry bitterly when he misses out on the blessing. But that bitter crying of Esau is not because he has missed out on Christ. But it's because he misses out on the wealth and the power and the glory, the things that his heart most desires. And the believers, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, they suffer the consequences of their sins and failures. You see, Jesus takes away the guilt of sin, but we often, we usually still have to deal with the bitter consequences of our sins in this life. Not as punishment, but it's just a fact. But sin breaks things. That sin brings pain and hurt. Even forgiven sin. And all this sin and deceit brings brokenness into the family and into the home. There's the crown prince Esau looking to murder his brother Jacob. And it it evokes the beginning when the child of the promise was killed by the child who turned his back on God in that first murder of Cain and Abel. And Isaac and Rebekah aren't communicating well or healthily. Because Rebecca can't just go to Isaac and tell him the truth. She has to kind of be underhanded again to get Jacob out of danger and send him away with some half-truths. So there are all these palace intrigues going on. It's not a healthy situation. And Rebecca says, I don't want to be bereft of both of my sons in one day, but she ends up losing them both anyway. Because... She says to Jacob there in verse 44, stay, go, f- stay with Laban a while. And in the Hebrew, it's, it's the plural of the word one. So I can't really translate it, but it's kind of like just a few days. Go stay with Uncle Laban for a few days until Esau calms down. But she's never going to see Jacob again. That's the cost of her deception. She's left with her other son, Esau, with murder in his heart and with ungodly wives by his side. As we look at this chapter, what is God telling us? Why did God call us from our homes this morning to come and listen to this chapter? Well, God is telling us that our faith can be imperfect. It can be fallible. It can fail. We can mess up. Badly, sometimes by accident, sometimes even on purpose. And so often throughout Scripture, it seems like human sin and foolishness might derail God's plan of salvation. I mean, look at this chapter, brother and sister. If the blessing goes to Esau, we go to hell. Our eternal salvation hangs on this event happening here thousands of years ago. The glorious truth of the gospel, the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
is that it does not depend on us, but it depends on him. Didn't we read that in Hebrews chapter 6? God guaranteed with an oath the unchangeable character of his purpose. He swore by himself so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. You see, through all the mess-ups of believers from the beginning of the world even to today, through all those mess-ups, There is an unbreakable anchor cable stronger than the strongest steel. And it reaches all the way back to Genesis 3.15, the mother promise. It reaches all the way back into eternity. And it goes throughout all history. And it is anchored in heaven itself, in Christ himself. And the unbreakable anchor cable of God's promises in Christ is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus is. And no amount of your messing up can change God's eternal purposes for you in Christ. And no amount of our collective messing up can change God's eternal purposes for the church in Christ. And that's exactly where our father Isaac ends up at that conclusion. You look there in chapter 28, the first verses of chapter 28, right after our text, and you see that Isaac has stopped trying to fight God. He humbles himself under God's sovereign decree of election. He submits himself to God's sovereign grace and sovereign plan of salvation in Christ. And he says, Jacob, you're the Holy One. You can't mix with the enemies of God and the peoples of the land like Esau has done. Go. And get a wife back in Padanaram. And then look at verse 3 of chapter 28. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you. That you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Isaac has come around to God's way of thinking. Isaac has submitted to God's eternal decrees and his revealed will through his sovereignty. What is God's message to us this morning? Well, the gospel comes to us as it always comes. It commands us to look away from ourselves and our own desires and to look to Christ to seek not our own way, but to seek to obey the will of God in Christ, to give up on yourself and to give yourself over to Christ. Brother and sister, God has a plan for your life, and you can try to fight it, and you can try to mess it up with your sins and mistakes, but God's sovereign electing purpose for you in Christ will stand. So submit to his sovereignty. 
and stop trying to fix things your own way. Accept that his blessing comes to you in no other way than in Christ, through Christ, and because of Christ. Now, you do not need to come to the Father clothed in the pathetic rags of your attempts to make up for your own sins. You don't need to put on a show to try and fool God into accepting you. But you can come near to the Father, clothed in the righteousness purchased by the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. You can come near to the Father, dressed in the sweet-smelling robes of your elder brother. And the Father is not deceived. He is not blind. Rather, the Father is pleased to know you and to accept you and to embrace you and to love you as he loves our elder brother himself, as he loves Christ himself. Now, all of our pathetic sins and mistakes, all of our attempts to do good in ourselves are swept away so quickly as our lives fade and perish. But God's eternal love, God's eternal purpose and love for us in Christ stands firm, abiding without end. And so let's praise Him and worship Him for that as we sing now in response to the sermon, Psalm 103, stanzas 6 through to 9. Amen.